Hello, and welcome to the All Angles podcast, where we look to unpack the wonderful world of ESG investing one conversation at a time. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as a solicitation or investment advice from the advisor. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Today, I'm joined by Naveen Chitkara, who has 29 years of investing experience and is a portfolio manager at MFS, managing the MFS large cap value strategy, as well as being the chair of our governance working group. In this wide ranging conversation, we cover topics such as how Naveen got into the industry, how he thinks about investing and sustainability within the investment process, examples of the types of issues that he looks at and engages on, as well as discussing a wide array of governance topics on companies and how investors can assess them. It's such a fascinating time to be talking to Naveen about value investing and governance, and I'm sure it's a theme we'll be talking about more and more in the years to come. Don't forget, you can subscribe to All Angles through multiple channels, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you choose to listen to your podcasts from. And if you have any questions you'd like us to cover, please do get in touch by emailing allangles at mfs.com. So without much further ado, Naveen, welcome to the podcast. Uh, How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Vish. Now, it's great to have you here. Um, So Naveen, maybe for our listeners, if you could give us a little bit of your potted history. How did you get here? And more importantly, why do you continue to choose to do what you do nearly 30 years on? So I grew up in a um, in a household with um, people in the healthcare industry. My father was a doctor, my mother a nurse, and uh, didn't have a lot of business experience or exposure uh, until I got into college. Uh, I'd worked in a large multinational industrial firm for about five years and realized that I really enjoyed uh, the kind of analytical side of the, the job. I worked in their merger and acquisition group and really in, enjoyed valuation and looking at different companies. Uh, I'd spent two years in graduate school and joined MFS out of graduate school as an analyst. I spent roughly eight uh, or nine years as an analyst uh, covering various sectors, which means looking for good investments within those sectors here at MFS. And uh, about uh, 15, 16 years ago, I transitioned to the large cap value to serve on the large cap value strategy. And I've been, uh, I've been here since. What an incredible 15, 16 years to be managing the value strategy uh, as well as the time that you've spent here. Um, as a side note, my mother was also a nurse and worked for a very, very long period of time for the NHS. So we have some shared history. Um, you mentioned that you know your your role when you joined MFS and as it is today is to find quote unquote good investments. How do you describe your philosophy, investment strategy? What do you look for as a good investment in your strategy? Yeah, so um, we really look for uh, good companies that are reasonably priced. Um, and I guess the way I would characterize it is I've been a lot more successful for clients in buying great companies at good prices than buying okay companies at great prices. So uh, there's really two aspects of that. One is to think about the attributes that those companies have. And typically, you know, uh, people use the term quality, um, you know, which means a lot of things to a lot of people. But what we're looking for are companies with a lot of uh, business differentiation, um, a lot of resilience, very low business risk. And those types of companies typically are ones that have very high returns, uh, have strong balance sheets and generate a lot of free cash flow. 
Um, if you think about it, a company that generates high returns is somewhat of an anomaly. With competition, it's very, it, it shouldn't be the case that a lot of companies can earn exorbitant profits. So what we really try to do is understand what are the attributes of that company and that situation that are allowing the company to sustain high levels of returns and profits and how durable do we think they are going forward. And, and we look at valuation and try to, um, when we identify those companies, buy them, own them at a time when there's a lot of um, value to be created for clients by holding them uh, as they accrete value over time. That's great. Thank you. And you mentioned the term valuation a few times. I think you defined how you think about quality. How, how do you think about valuation in that context? So valuation is um, interesting. We look at, uh, I guess I would characterize it as somewhat of a mosaic approach. I mean, theoretically, if we knew with perfect information what the future would hold, we can do a uh, intrinsic value discounted cash flow to determine what a company um, is should be valued at and, and what the upside is. The truth of the matter is that the, the, world, the future is uncertain. So we really look at uh, valuation under uh, different term, different factors, you know, very focused on free cash flow. We think about the level of business risk. If there's a company that is much more um, stable, regulated electric utility, for example, the amount of return that we should um, expect on that uh, is less than something, a company where there is, there's a fair amount more business risk. In addition, um, we've, the past 25 years, the um, I know it doesn't feel like it today because interest rates are going up this this year, but interest rates have come down substantially. Um, cap rates on real estate have come down substantially. Uh, discount rates have come down. Spreads have really tightened, and the environment has really um, uh, become uh, much more. You know, growth is slowed and, and valuations are higher. So we really do also look at valuation relative to. Uh, other asset classes and other investment opportunities to get a sense, you know, as a mosaic of if something is um, looks like it's attractively valued. And when you think about that mosaic, how would you say that sort of sustainability in its broadest sense, how does that assessment fit into your investment process or into that mosaic? So it's interesting, the, the, the our investment process works if we can if, if the valuation um, metrics that we're using <clears throat> and the level of profits and returns is sustainable, where it really breaks down is if we find great companies that are generating a lot of cash and high returns, and in three or four years, those returns are going to be competed away. Um, similarly, the um, how sustainability and governance and, and even the environmental and social aspects of sustainability fit in is when we think about the durability of, the, of those returns and the durability of that business. And if I could give you an example, um, you know, from a governance perspective, the um, idea of having, you know, if, if we think back thousands of years, an elder council that in each individual case, an elder doesn't really hold any power, but as a, as a, as a collective group, they oversee the leadership it, it's a model that's worked for thousands and thousands of years. And that is a model that ensures that um, the best interest of the organization is put ahead of the best interest of any one individual. And to think about a company 
from a from a sustainability standpoint, that level of governance is critical in most cases. I mean, there are exceptions. There are situations with family businesses and founder-led companies where um, it's it, like everything else in sustainability. It takes work and, and it's, there's some complexity to uh, to really understand what's what's in the best interest of the company going forward. But that's really how governance and sustainability fit in. Great, and I think um, thank you for that. It's super interesting your example about the elders, and and we'll I think we'll get into sort of governance and other models that that have have and haven't survived maybe the test of time so far. Um, before we get to that. Um, one thing I know that I think you've been asked in the past, and one thing that always strikes me as curious is your focus on, you've used words like durability, sustainability, meaning sort of the longevity of businesses and quality, which don't necessarily always go together with value investing. You know, yeah. to use your, you know normally people associate value investing with finding okay companies at great prices. I'm wondering, is there anything else or about your investment philosophy style or your beliefs that you think is, you know, not necessarily even counter to conventional wisdom, but not necessarily well understood by other people. Perhaps the sustainability and complexity um, argument that you were you were just laying out there. Yeah, and I think it's it's actually it it it's relevant right now. I mean, I guess there are two uh, different factors that um, you know when I think about investing. One is to be very disciplined and to be very um, stay very true to who we are as investors, and that's really thinking about valuation support, thinking about durability of companies. There's another competing aspect that we think. So that's those are inward, looking at a company and looking at kind of the work we do. If we look outward, it's really looking at how society is changing and how the marketplace is changing. We hit a period um, in around the world, in the UK and in the US, from the late 1970s up until around 2000 where there was deregulation there was really an opening up and capitalism was able to flourish in ways that created a lot of value for uh, society and, and 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 created a lot of a lot of wealth for um you know for 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 many people um what's happened uh since then and after the financial crisis is we've been in a period with uh, more regulation. There's more of a recognition that, um, you know, as society, there are demands that are being put on companies to act and behave in ways that are good for society. Um, and those demands aren't things that were necessarily put on companies 20 or 30 years ago. So when we think about sticking to our discipline on valuation, that's something that we absolutely do in how we look for companies. But that really has to be in the context of the fact that the demands on these companies are going to change over the next 5, 10, 15 years, and we're seeing it. And, and I guess that juxtaposition of those two, and really almost thinking of it as using two different muscles um, in a sport, is, um, is something that is, is somewhat, I guess, unique and different in, in the way that, that I look at things. I mean, I very much look, uh, spend a lot of time looking externally and understanding, um, you know, big sociological and, um, you know, changes in regulation and, and also, you know, spend a lot of time, you know, in a very detailed way on companies. So that that's probably the, the most relevant difference uh, or unique aspect. Really love that. I think, and Naveen, one of the things as, as we've been talking, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, even and I was asking your perspective on sort of where you view the sort of sustainability landscape. One of the 
analogies you used that really stayed with me and resonated with me deeply was sort of the sledgehammer and the scalpel, you know, using the right tool for the right job. I, I wonder if you could double click on that for us now. It's, it's similar to your sort of two muscles analogy, but it really helped me understand sort of how you think about what is the right sort of weapon in the arsenal to use, uh, depending on, you know, what, what is happening and maybe your two perspectives of thinking about sociological change, as well as your experience of working very deeply with, you know, individual companies or thinking about individual companies and, and working through some of those, some of those details. Yeah, so sure. I, I think in, um, initially when there is change, government or society has to really mandate change, oftentimes with a sledgehammer, um, and things have to be worked through. I, I recall back in, I think it was the 1970s when in the U.S. the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act went into place. And what this uh, basically said is that the anti-bribery laws that the United States had on their own soil were being applied to U.S. companies when they do business outside of the United States. And even 12, 13 years later, when I entered the workforce, there were there was a lot of uh, discontent among American companies feeling like they were being treated unfairly and held in one standard where other companies throughout the world were, were not held to those anti-bribery standards. And what happened over time were two things. Number one, you know, it was a wonderful thing. It was a great thing to do for society to, to pass the uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. But, but there were, there, you know, on the one hand, many other countries then adopted those types of practices uh, and regulations. Uh, but also there was some, um, some, some weaving of, of different policies. And one example is something called a facilitating payment, where in certain societies, uh, government doesn't really work unless you pay commissions to have permits done. And, it's, and, and, and to allow some leeway for that was something that allowed businesses to actually um, be able to continue to operate in societies where the, the institutions and the governments didn't operate in the same way that they do in the United States and, and, and perhaps Western Europe. So as it, as it happens, you know, if we think about uh, climate and carbon, we have a absolute need to get to net zero by 2050. Everybody knows the difference between one and a half degrees and two degrees. And in order to do that, there is a roadmap of how to get there. Um, the, the intent of all of this is to avoid hardship among the most vulnerable people in our, in, in our society and in our world. Um, and as companies are going through that, we're working with utilities to understand why they're not moving faster. And in a lot of cases, they're regulated under a low cost mandate. They um, are absolutely very conscious of the bills that lower income people have um, and would have under a dramatic move to net zero. There's also a expectation in a lot of developed parts of the world that electricity is going to be, in addition to cheap, it's going to be very reliable. If we think about the need to have something like natural gas in order to take care of the peaks in demand, we're going to need technological change. So one, I guess a, an analogy with the scalpel would be the amount of work we're doing in engagement with companies to understand if, if they are relying on natural gas, which, you know, the, frankly, they, they have to for some time, that they're also really innovating and advocating and working directly to look uh, into long-term battery storage, which would be a solution, into utilizing hydrogen for 
gas turbines for peaking capacity into carbon sequestration uh, for for natural gas. So there's a whole host of types of work in order to really implement the top down. But um, the top down is necessary in order to be a catalyst to, to get the work going. I think that's fantastic. As you talked about, you know, climate being a sort of defining uh, topic for uh, for this current era of investing. Are there other examples outside of the utilities that you think about companies that whether you've either engaged on or analysis that you've thought about in the context of different industries or different businesses? Yeah, for climate specifically, that that is one we've also looked at, you know, for example, aircraft manu engine manufacturers and how they are thinking about getting to net zero, um, their use of hydrogen for uh, fuel, the use of renewable fuels. Um, we've also done a lot of work trying to understand carbon offsets. One of the most prevalent carbon offsets is using timber trees for, for carbon offsets. I think that forestry and timber is a really interesting piece because it, it's not perfect. It, it really is utilized by companies. And I think there's a growing recognition that in a lot of cases, the carbon offsets are being applied in ways where if those trees weren't offset, there would be something growing there that would be absorbing carbon. So it's an exciting time to be able to really work and look at what is being done, what are the shortcomings from a technology perspective, and how companies can face it. And I, I'll tell you, my, my, this is very interesting. I love talking about this, but my, my true passion is investing um, and creating value for clients. So I, I do want to um, make sure that it, it comes across that you know the strategy is being managed exactly like it was managed in the past. The reason that climate and that kind of social the social aspects are so relevant is that that's really where societal demands are, and that's going to that those create both risks and opportunities uh, for companies in the portfolio. And as we think about the long-term durability of cash flows of companies in the portfolio, it's it's critical that we really take into account all of the demands and regulations and changes that society is putting on these companies. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like such an interesting and important, and I think in time, almost an obvious evolution of what investors are asking about. You know, I, I had um, some clients ask recently a question around, um, you know, if you, you can't say that it's not a change in your process because, you know, you weren't thinking about science-based targets five years ago because frankly they didn't exist five years ago right and and i said no that's true but equally in 1998 we probably weren't asking too many questions about cybersecurity, but to not ask them today would be unthinkable right so you know we, we are witnessing kind of real change in the real economy change in real businesses and how they're put together and our job your job really as an investor is to make sure that you're paying attention to that in order to ask the pertinent questions and understand where the opportunities and risks may may lay and in and of themselves these topics are fascinating and as you said complex and ambiguous and you know they can be seductive but you know ultimately we have to come back to how do we sort of create value um i naveen i really want to pick your brain on on governance before we get there you mentioned social risks um, yes. what are some of the social topics that that you've been sort of not necessarily focused on but have come across your desk things that you've thought about in the context of the companies that you invest in yeah, and it's 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 fascinating. I, um, I I will admit that I never really gave a lot of thought to where 
palm oil or cocoa beans comes from and how they are harvested. Um, we've owned consumer companies that uh, utilize them. And over the past couple of years, there's been a, a growing recognition among those companies, among other uh, NGOs, and, and I've, and I've uh, be become more aware of uh, modern slavery, of situations where workers leave their homes in, in lower socioeconomic areas and they pay commissions to work on a farm and send uh, wages home. And they, when they get there, their passports are taken and they are put into a situation where they have to work off their, the commission that, that they had paid in addition to uh, their living quarters. And they get into a situation where it, it really is, um, it really is not, and it is in the benefit of society. It's incredibly complicated because in a lot of cases, there aren't the supplies of goods that are being harvested in a way that is done, you know, for the benefit of, uh, of labor and society. In other cases, in cocoa beans, there's a lot of children that are harvesting. And, and, and some of the companies, a company that is in the value portfolio is building schools in those areas. So it's, and it's, it's a situation where there's auditing. There are actions that the companies are taking, auditing meaning that you know, outside groups or the companies are going and interviewing people and really understanding the structure. And there's really a differentiation going on. And it, it's very interesting to see the change as it's happening. And it's something that if a company were to ignore these societal changes, you know, it's, it's my belief that once we get to a point where there is much more of an infrastructure and reporting structure to ensure that companies are, you know, acting in a way that's in the best interest of society and, and the people that are working in the, in, you know, in a fair way, that there are going to be regulations. There's going to be a lot more items that are going to make it very difficult for companies that don't get started now. These are the types of things that take a number of years. So the social aspect, uh, the whole modern slavery around cocoa beans, around palm oil, around rubber production in Malaysia, those are things that is very top of mind. That's great. And um, as we think about that and holding companies accountable, perhaps, and I want to come back to your, you know, the, the Council of Elders analogy um, and on governance and using your lenses of the either you know top down or bottom up or the scalpel and the sledgehammer are there things that you think about on the governance perspective either things that persist through time and a big kind of structural trends that we're witnessing or, or things that you're more focused on as you get into work with some of these individual companies or some of these issues yeah we've done a lot of work around the i guess i would describe it that there are what one of our colleagues, um, Andy Jones, has, has uh, termed uh, hard-coded versus soft-coded. There are things that are explicit that, you know, that are tangible, and then there's the soft, the culture. Um, and when we've done a lot with thinking about board composition, board structure, about compensation plans, about capital decisions, but we've also done a lot to better understand board culture, understand independence, understand how succession planning really works. And that's where I think we really have a great opportunity to be, you know, very good stewards of uh, these companies that uh, our clients are invested in. So just to double click on that for a second, what are some of the things that you might think about in a culture assessment, something that is so qualitative, you know, really hard to measure, quite kind of squishy and, you know, I'm sure situational and nuanced by 
region type of company you mentioned you know family-owned businesses versus kind of more you know sort of traditional corporate businesses that we might be used to in the developed world um how, how what are some of the ways in which you and the team sort of make an assessment of something as amorphous as a company's culture yep I, I'll, I'll answer that let me if i can just back up for a second um one aspect if you think about it we are investing in companies that in a lot of cases they don't make anything. The company itself, you know, is intellectual property or technology, and it's really the application of that technology. And in a lot of cases, what really creates the difference between a great stock or a very successful company that's grown very well versus a company that kind of languishes is their ability to scale, their ability to interact, the ability for people to work together, to transfer information, to innovate and to kind of incorporate that innovation. This whole area of how people interact, you know, why, what's the optimal, how they can take what they're doing and apply it as a platform to other businesses or adjacencies, that's probably the most important thing that we do. Mm -hmm. And it's more important than understanding any one product, especially with the application of technology. So that's kind of just a headline big, that's bigger than governance. But we really try to understand, you know, one area is succession planning and understanding where does the list of successors, either as a management team or on the board, come from? How are the board members or the management team in, interrelated? One thing, I, I'm actually very impressed with the responsiveness over the years that boards have, have had. And oftentimes, I, I don't feel like our job is really trying to get a trophy on the wall or have something that we're able to point to as a win against the company. I think of it more that we are partners with the company and we, uh, when we have concerns, we share those concerns. And there have been many times when we have shared concerns about governance uh, or other items, um, and it's, it's brought up a lot of deep thought. So in succession and, and change, and in succession planning, you know, we've had, there was an energy company that had a, um, you know, a chairman and a CEO that there was a change and we didn't think it wasn't done in the best interest of, of, of shareholders. We brought it up and, you know, very shortly within a couple of weeks, there were three board members in our office uh, having a conversation. And within a couple of weeks, there, were, there was a lot of change at, at the company in, in a positive way. There are compensation plans that we've had conversations about. And in a lot of cases, there are changes to the compensation plans. Sometimes it takes multiple cycles of the proxy to have those change, and compensation is incredibly complex, but that's, that's another aspect. Oftentimes, you know, there's a, there's a policy or a, um, a norm of what is a board size and what is too big. What we found is, and sometimes, you know, there are boards that we think are too small um, with the concentration of uh, influence within a very small number of people. So it's really this whole idea, again, with the scalpel of asking the questions, digging in, and really thinking of, you know, this is, a, this is an investment that's going to accrete value for our clients. What makes the most sense in order to optimize and lower the risks and really let that business flourish from a, from a governance and a board oversight perspective? That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. I want to maybe, you know, one of the things that you do in addition to, to managing the portfolio is is chair our governance working group, which is, you know, made up of a broad kind of cross section of the investment platform, thinking about some of the sort of 
fundamental principles, the building blocks of how we think about this across the platform. Just curious to ask you, you know, in addition to some of the topics you mentioned there, succession planning, compensation, board structure, composition, what are the kinds of things that the governance working group has been working on? And how does that help you as a generalist and, and other specialists in your sort of day to day work? How do you translate that into the work that you that you carry out as you're looking through the portfolio and, and building it and looking through the companies? Yeah, well, great. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll just give a little bit of background. So we have a sustainability group and I'm, I'm involved with that. And, um, you know, outside of that, we have uh, kind of a climate working group, a social working group and a governance working group, which was established about two years ago. There are about 15 colleagues uh, on the governance working group, largely investment people who've been around for a long time and have worked with companies for a long time. Uh, we have representatives from the legal department, you know, obviously the stewardship group, which handles, you know, proxy voting with us. Uh, we're really integrated on the investment side. And it's also um, geographically diverse with Asia, Europe and the U.S., as well as fixed income and equity uh, involved. We've developed a set of principles that we use to guide our interactions with companies about governance, but also how we think about uh, proxy voting. And it was a very difficult exercise to go through to come together and develop governance principles because there are different norms in different parts of the world. So we wanted to put together a document that would be universal enough that it would apply in the U.S., in Europe, and even in emerging markets um, and in Asia. Something as simple as the board chair CEO split is something that is, you know, very common, mandated, is expected over in, in, in Europe, in the U.K., and it's not the case in the U.S. So instead of coming up with a prescription of what is the right, um, like a list, it's really something that looks at things and is specific enough to be relevant, but is really kind of philosophical and looking at the spirit of what the intent is. We spent a lot of time developing governance principles, and now we're really, um, really two aspects of, of governance now. One is really drilling down and trying to develop content um, and thinking through topics that were, as an investment group, interacting with, com with, with companies that were invested in. Um, one area is compensation. Compensation, as I mentioned, is incredibly complex. And we can think about kind of, if, if we even put aside the absolute amount of compensation, what's the intent of compensation? What should be in long-term compensation versus short-term compensation? How focused should compensation be on returns? What level of performance should kind of payouts be targeted towards? There, there's a whole aspect there that we um, have started to flesh out. Board structure and board composition, I mentioned, we've taken, we've really solicited information not only from within the governance group, but also with other people within MFS and, and companies outside of MFS to get their perspectives on what are the soft attributes to look for when thinking about board structure. The last area is really um, sharing best practices. And I will tell you, there's a lot of work that's happened in the US and Europe. I would say that there's a tremendous amount of work that's going on in Japan and Asia. Um, at our next governance group, a uh, number of our Asia colleagues on the working group are gonna be talking about different engagements they have. And there is a unbelievable amount of engagement and change happening in Japan, which is really interesting uh, and fascinating to see. And that's, um, it's great and gives perspective on sharing best practices when we're able to share those ideas across uh, different, different geographies. 
That's fascinating. J governance in Japan has always been such a phenomenally interesting issue from the kind of cross shareholdings and, you know, some of the sort of board diversity type issues. And it's fascinating to see how some of those statistics are moving and, and changing. And I know that some of the team put out um, really interesting, uh, very short white paper on, on what they're seeing in, in work being done, which is fascinating. Um, I wonder actually just on compensation, which certainly from my seat seems to be in the sort of sociological uh, lens in terms of the zeitgeist right now on sort of CEO pay versus average median pay. Do you see any of that sort of creeping in? Is that a helpful uh, accelerant to some of these conversations with companies? Is that more of a distraction? Because actually, you know, the court of public opinion isn't always necessarily uh, a helpful uh, a place to, to kind of discuss some of those issues. But that feels like one of the one of the many governance issues of today, which is front of mind for many stakeholders, including, you know, consumers of, of these businesses. Do, do you see that filter through to some of the conversations that you're having around around compensation giving is, as you said, such a complex issue? It is um, absolutely coming into the conversation and it's incredibly complex. If we think about compensation standards in a uh, geography like Europe versus the US, they're dramatically different. If we think about compensation differences between running a public company in the U.S. versus running a private equity sponsored company, there are differences. Um, there's also been a lot of turnover of senior executives of in, in some of the most highest highest paid industries in in the U.S. and overseas. There have also been more cases of clawbacks that have been implemented. It is not something that anybody at MFS really feels. Uh, on an absolute basis. Um, I mean, the, the, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is optimize the companies for, you know, to create the best, the most value for companies and to do it in a responsible way. And compensation is something that's very important to uh, motivate. But I feel like in cases where compensation might be out of line, it's, it's very easy to fix when a company is underperforming where mm. it becomes very complex is when there's a high performing company and the compensation is excessive at what point is it excessive how do we frame that and and i, I you know our, our approach has been to have you know, multiple conversations to really start to uh, better understand that one aspect that we we have had um, a lot of uh, impact on is there have been you know in some cases uh, special retention agreements given you know as part of uh, mergers or, or other corporate actions that we didn't really feel were appropriate and had discussions. And there's absolutely been some changes in compensation in cases. But that's, that's I feel like this is um, almost like a garden. It's the kind of thing that's going to have to be managed over time and cultivated um, more than being able to have a discrete time when this is, this is changed. Naveen, you've been extremely generous with your time. Before we finish, I'd love to ask you some quick fire questions about you. Um, outside of, of all the considerable work that you do at MFS that you very eloquently talked about today, what else do you devote your time and energy to? Well, it's uh, it, this may be a typical uh, boring answer, but uh, when I spend uh, after work and spending time with my family, there isn't a whole lot of time left. Uh, I play a little bit of golf, uh, I garden and um, you spend time with my family. Nice. Uh, and is there a, a book, an article, or piece of literature that you've shared or recommended the most to to friends, family, uh, colleagues? 
Well, that I could spend a little bit more time on this topic. Okay. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I, I did mention this whole idea that the way that people interact and, and organizations interact is really important to not only the companies, but society. And there's a number of books that I've read that have really um, embodied that. One is, um, and it's uh, Sapiens by Yuval Noah Hariri. Uh, he has a new book. The Sa- Sapiens actually is really fascinating mm-hmm. in it kind of sets the basic prem- premise. Uh, Jeffrey West wrote a book called Scale that really, you know, if you think about it, if there are 10 people in a group, there are about 40 or 50 interactions between them. When you go from 10 to 100, the number of interactions goes up a hundredfold. So it really is exponential. And when you think about companies scaling or an organization scaling, how, how does that work? Um, and then uh, there's a woman named Priya Parker who wrote a book, The Art of Gathering, which really goes through how people interaction, how to really optimize interactions with people to get the, the most out of meetings. Um, as far as climate, avoiding the climate disaster is, um, mm-hmm. was written by Bill Gates. I found that to be incredibly helpful. Um, and then just from an investment standpoint, one thing I love to do to understand a company is to read the letter to shareholders, but not for one year, but for five or 10 years. And you can really go back. There's a, a stake in the ground, a uh, document that um, institutionalizes what a CEO said 10 years ago. And mm-hmm. we can look at how that has changed and how they've, you know, again, looking for this constancy of purpose constancy of strategy, but also being open to changes going on in society and looking for managing that dichotomy is something that comes through loud and clear with some companies. And, um, you know, frankly, in a lot of companies that haven't really um, uh, had the same level of effectiveness, you can sometimes see that in how things change and how the strategy changes over a long period of time. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Lots of um, new things to read on on the books. I do. I thought about Sapiens and uh, Noel Yuval recently because, I, if I'm not mistaken, it's that one potentially kind of days that get you know kind of drives it. There's really three things that we should be sort of very focused on as existential risks. Two of which are, I think, you know, nuclear war and uh, climate change. So, and he wrote that book, you know, before the you know current events of 2022. Uh, and you know the current you know um, focus on on climate, which seems very prescient for us to be sort of very focused on a couple of those core issues. So really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, just before we go, is there any one message that you would think really important to leave with our listeners today? Yeah. So I mean, what what I'm passionate about and what really gets me up in the morning and keeps me in this job is investing and adding value for clients. To do that effectively, it really is important to incorporate sustainability factors into the fabric of what our investment process is. And the reason for that, as I mentioned earlier, is because society and societal demands are changing. And the level of competition, you know, at, at, as things change is, is going to evolve. Um, and I, I frankly don't think that, I think there's a good chance 10 years from now, people aren't going to be talking about sustainability. It's just going to be part of what we do, similar to how people don't talk about a company's internet strategy anymore. Uh, having a online presence, having a, you know a, a ability to think about technological disruption is completely incorporated in just about every company that we look at. So I feel like that, um, having that and integrating that is really important for every investor um, as we think about things now and then going forward. 
Naveen, thank you so much for your time and all your insights. It's been a fascinating conversation. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you're left with a better idea of how sustainability fits into the investment process and ways investors can assess the different governance issues around the world. Now remember, you can subscribe to All Angles through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you choose to get your podcasts from. We would absolutely love to hear from you. So if you have any questions or topics that you would really like us to cover, please do get in touch by emailing us at allangles at mfs.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.